invite you to turn in your bulletins to our insert where we will read together Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Let's read the Word of God together. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission is a famous passage within the life of the church. There are many Christians around the world, as well as here this morning in the sanctuary, who recognize the words that we just read together. And though we're familiar with this passage of Scripture, I think it's always helpful to be refreshed with what Scripture says. It's often those things that we're most familiar with, that we think we know the best, that we end up and miss some special or unique characteristic. As our passage begins this morning, we see that the disciples are going to Galilee, to the mountain, as they have been told by Jesus to do. And it's interesting that they're told to go to the mountain. As you think about all the things that happen throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it becomes apparent that mountaintops are important. Just a couple of examples. Moses, Mount Sinai. Elijah, Mount Carmel. And then throughout Jesus' ministry, we see many other instances where mountaintop experiences are important. As I began to study for this sermon, Dr. Mark Ross, who is an ARP minister, he is a professor at Erskine Theological Seminary, he also wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew. He, He pointed something out that I would not have seen right off. In the Gospel of Matthew, early on in Jesus' ministry, we see where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by the devil. And we read that in Matthew chapter 4. And I want to read just a couple of verses this morning out of Matthew chapter 4. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Here we see Satan trying to tempt Jesus. And the promise is that he will give Jesus all authority over the kingdoms of the world if Jesus will bow down and worship him. While Satan may have authority and power in certain terms, he's only as powerful as he's allowed to be. And when Jesus Christ returns again, Satan is vanquished. He is gone. He is cast into the fiery lake. Here this morning in our passage in Matthew 28, from a symbolic standpoint, we again see Jesus Christ on a mountaintop. Except this time, he has all authority. 
He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth by his Father in heaven. And this shows Christ's deity. This power, this authority is given from God the Father. And it's in the context of this authority. It's in the context of this power that we see the great commission being given. Matthew tells us that when the disciples, which are now eleven, because Judas betrayed Jesus and hung himself, when the disciples get to the mountain, they worship. And we're told that some doubt. It appears through reading commentary and looking at other places in Scripture, such as Matthew 28, verse 10, that not only the eleven disciples are there that day on the mountaintop, but some of Jesus' broader following. In Matthew 28, 10, this is where we read Jesus saying, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Brothers, here in Matthew 28, verse 10, refers to not only Jesus' disciples, but his broader following. I tell you all of this this morning as a way of background and introduction. I want us to look this morning at the Great Commission itself, broken down into three different parts. First, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Second, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And third, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. As we begin, we'll start by looking at Jesus' instruction to go and make disciples. A lot of pastors, when they preach on the Great Commission, they'll use this passage as a springboard for missions of some type, whether it be a short-term or a long-term mission trip. They'll use this passage for evangelism purposes as well. And this is great. This is part of what we find in the Great Commission, but there's so much more than simply this idea of going. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. This idea of making disciples of all nations is something that may have struck the original audience as odd. Jesus didn't tell his disciples to only make disciples and followers of those whom are Israelites or Jews, but he tells them to go and make disciples of all nations. This gift of life in Christ is available to all who have been called according to his purposes and who profess faith in him. It's not just limited to the Jews in the New Testament church, but also to the Gentiles. And today it's not just limited to America or to the middle class, but all whom God has chosen. And as believers, as Christians, as the church, how do we know who that is? Well, the simple answer is we don't. We don't know who God's elect are. And so therefore, we are to go and make disciples of all nations. We go and proclaim the good news of the gospel to everyone that we meet. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 6, we see where Isaiah is commissioned to be a prophet. And if you'll remember, Isaiah has a vision or a dream where he sees the Lord sitting on his throne and he hears the seraphim as they cry out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And as he sees all of this, Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And as we continue to read through the story, we see where one of the seraphim flies to Isaiah and touches his mouth with a hot coal. And the seraph tells Isaiah that because the coal has touched his lips, that he's cleansed, he is forgiven, his guilt is taken away. And as the story continues, beginning in verse 8, we read, And Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, 
Whom shall I send? And who will go for me? And Isaiah responds and says, Here am I. Send me. In our passage this morning in Matthew, Jesus isn't asking who will go. He's telling us to go. But like Isaiah, as the church, we often feel that we can't go. We feel that God maybe hasn't equipped us. Maybe we're not confident in our forgiveness of sins. Maybe we're worried about what we're going to say. Or what they may say in return as we go and proclaim the gospel message. The ESV commentators say of our passage in Isaiah, Through this seraph, God declares the remedy for Isaiah's sin to be sufficient and instantly effective. Now Isaiah is qualified to proclaim the only hope of the world, the overruling grace of God. And in the same way as Christians, as those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven and cleansed in full. Jesus' blood has washed us clean, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're given the grace and the mercy. We're given the strength, the wisdom to go and make disciples of all nations. One commentator had this to say about the church's lack of going into the world. He says, and yet most of the people of God who populate our churches go nowhere. We stay in our churches, we hold our services, we run our programs, mostly for ourselves. Already Christian people might transfer into our churches if our worship services and our programs catch their attention. But rare is the church that is truly making new disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you know, that's something that the vision team of First ARP is learning as they go through this revitalization process. That many churches focus inwardly rather than focusing outwardly. I think it's interesting to note here that Jesus isn't asking the church just to make converts. Rather, he's asking the church, he was asking his disciples, and he's asking you and me to make disciples. And how exactly do we make disciples? Well, we go into the world and we proclaim the good news of the gospel message to all that we meet. And then those whom the Holy Spirit illumines, those whom he speaks and works in their lives, those whom we might would say convert or make a confession or come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that leads us this morning to our second point. Baptizing these disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is not something that is done to aid in salvation. In fact, baptism does not guarantee salvation. Rather, baptism is an outward symbol signifying our belonging to the covenant family of God. In the Old Testament, God instructed Abraham that all should be circumcised. And in the same way, the New Testament sign of circumcision is baptism. And as the church goes into the world to make new disciples, those new disciples who enter into the church should be and will be baptized. In the Presbyterian church, we baptize the infants of those whom are members of the visible church. And in the Presbyterian form of government, as found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
We are called through Scripture to baptize those adults who come to a saving knowledge of faith in Christ. While this isn't a sermon designated solely on baptism, I want you to hear that baptism is an important part of being a believer. It's a sacrament of grace that is ordained by Jesus Christ himself, and not only for the admission into the visible church, but it's to serve as a sign and to serve as a seal of a person's regeneration, their coming to Christ, their remission of sins, and of a person's giving up to God his life for a new life found in Christ. The final thing that we are to do as we go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, is to teach them all that Jesus has commanded. As Christians living in 2012, this means teaching them all the things that are found in the pages of Scripture. Teaching is the means by which somebody new to the faith learns to be more like Christ, just like those of us who have been in the church for a long time learn to be more like Christ through reading Scripture. But one commentator had the following to say, Often even seasoned Christians respond by saying that we are to teach and to learn all that Jesus has commanded. And that makes sense, and that even sounds correct. But that is not what the Great Commission is saying. We are told in this commandment to teach disciples how to observe or obey all that Jesus commanded. Knowledge and obedience are two very different things. It's not enough to simply learn the commandments, rather we are to live them. I read a story written by Bill Hybels, and it came out of his book, Becoming a Contagious Christian. And Hybels says that knowledge won't get you anywhere. You have to act on what you know. Imagine studying the science of aviation and then hanging around in airports. You can learn all about the physics of flight. You can learn which companies, which airlines have the safest record. You can learn which model aircraft has the safest record. You can reserve your flight. You can drive to the airport. You can go to the gate. You can double check the cockpit crew's credentials. But all of that does you no good unless you actually get on the plane. Christians today have a knowledge of what it means to follow Christ. We have a knowledge of what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. We have a knowledge of what the Ten Commandments teach us. We have a knowledge of what the disciples' ministry on earth was like. We have a knowledge of what Jesus' ministry on earth was like. As I spoke about at the beginning of the sermon, we have a knowledge of what the Great Commission teaches. But knowledge does not equal action. In the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter, we see where Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey my commands. The NIV commentators say that love, like faith, cannot be separated from obedience. You know, teaching people to obey Christ isn't easy. It's not always easy in your life, and it's not always easy in my life. In fact, obeying all that Jesus commands is hard. It's impossible. It requires a tremendous amount of spiritual strength. But we have comfort and encouragement. Look at what Jesus tells us at the end of our passage this morning. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
This promise that we see here this morning is packed with power. It's overflowing with grace and it's a covenantal promise made by Jesus Christ himself who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ is not off somewhere leaving us to fend for ourselves. He's not dead in the grave. He's not a mere prophet. He's not some good teacher. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has redeemed his children on Calvary. And he is with us. He is alive and well. And he's powerful always to the very end of the age. John Piper says that the Great Commission is sandwiched in powerful grace. And so are we. Dr. Mark Ross, in his commentary on Matthew, mentions how each narrative section in Matthew's gospel ends with a fairly long discourse. But as Dr. Ross points out, Matthew 26 through 28, that narrative section does not follow suit. There's no long discourse following Matthew chapter 28. Dr. Ross says that's because we are to provide the final discourse. We who are disciples are to make disciples of all nations. We are to teach them to observe all that Christ commands. Dr. Ross continues, it's a daunting task that he gives us, but behold his power, all authority in heaven and on earth, and his assurance to the very ends of the age are more than sufficient to guarantee our success. Dr. Ken Pretty says, to be a disciple is to make other disciples, not just to continue to be taught or to continue to teach already made disciples. And that's our calling in the church. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. To go out into the world, not on our own, but with the power of God through Jesus Christ. And as we go out into the world, we are to proclaim the good news of the gospel. We are to make disciples of all peoples and all nations. And as we do so, we know and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit that He will open eyes and He will change lives. Not because of what we do and not because of what we say, but because of the power of Christ in us. And as these new disciples come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we will baptize them into the church, into the covenant family of God. And we will teach them and we will train them and we will model for them the commandments of Christ. And as they grow closer to God and as we grow closer to God, we will continue to reach out to the world around us, knowing that Jesus Christ is with us to the very end of the age. What an awesome and humbling commission this is. Trust in the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that he will sustain you and me in the days to come as we seek to make disciples. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a daunting task we have as the church to go out and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Father, not something that we can do on our own, yet you don't expect us to. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful this morning for the power of the Holy Spirit. 
who works in and among us each and every day, who lives within us, who who gives us the words to say. And Father, we have lots of reasons, individually and corporately as a church, as to why maybe we're not proclaiming the gospel message to those in our communities, to those in our neighborhoods, to those in our schools and our workplaces. But Father, you have commanded and called us to do it, to go out and to proclaim to the world the good news of the gospel that is found in Jesus Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask and pray this morning that you would continue to bless First ARP as we go through this revitalization process, that you would be with the vision team, that you would be with the session, that you would be with the prayer teams and all the other different groups, Father, who make up this church. Father, that you would grant us opportunities to proclaim your word and your message, that you would provide us through the power of the Holy Spirit with the words to say, and that, Father, you would bless us Not for our sake, Father, but for the sake of the kingdom. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the ability that we have to read it. For the freedom that we have to hear it preached. That we can come into your house each and every Sunday to grow closer to you. And Father, just help us in the days and the weeks to come that we would take the knowledge that we have of who you are and the knowledge that we have of Scripture and we would apply it to our daily lives. Not only on Sundays and Wednesdays when we're at church, but Father, each and every day as we live out our lives. Dear Heavenly Father, as we gather for worship this morning, we are uh, aware that there are those in our midst who, who are struggling. Who are struggling with illnesses, who are struggling with family and marital issues. Father, we know that there are those who aren't in our midst who are fighting other various diseases. And Father, we just ask that your healing hand would be upon them, that you would help that you would help them, that you would grant the doctors and the nurses wisdom as they seek to treat them. Father, we're thankful this morning for just the freedom that we have as Americans. And Lord, we know that that uh, does not necessarily come free. And so we ask this morning that you be with our troops wherever they are, that you would grant them safety and wisdom. Father, we ask that you'd be with the local leaders here in Rock Hill the leaders across York County, across the state of South Carolina. Father, we ask that you be with our national leaders, that you would grant them wisdom and discernment, that you would bless them in all that they do and in all that they say. That, Father, they would look to you and your word first and foremost. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you be with uh, the leaders of, of this denomination, with all the different boards committees with all the different agencies father all influencing the world with your gospel message grant them peace 
and be with them. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of life that you have given us in Christ. Help us to proclaim it boldly, loudly, and proudly, dear Heavenly Father, as we seek to grow your kingdom. These things we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As we continue in worship, let us stand and recite the Apostles' Creed together. It can be found printed for you in your bulletin. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our final hymn, our hymn of dedication, is hymn number 383, I Love to Tell the Story.
the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.